Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a mojito. What do you have? I am drinking a heart cider, and on this week's episode, we're going to look at the Cleveland kidnappings committed by Ariel Castro. Castro was born in Puerto Rico and moved to Cleveland, Ohio after his parents separated. Castro's involvement with the police started long before his arrest for the kidnapping. In 1993, he was arrested for domestic violence against his then-girlfriend, Gramida Figueroa. Figueroa's sister, Alida Caraballo, said that, quote, all hell started to break loose, end quote, when the couple moved into their new home. Caraballo and her husband, Frank, claimed that Castro beat Figueroa breaking her nose, ribs, and arms, and causing a blood clot on her brain that resulted in an inoperable tumor. He also threw her down a flight of steps, cracking her skull. Despite all of the physical evidence, the grand jury did not indict Castro. Castro's troubles also were reflected at his job. Castro worked as a bus driver for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District until he was fired for quote-unquote bad judgment, including making an illegal U-turn with children on his bus, using his bus to go grocery shopping, leaving a child on the bus while he went for lunch, and leaving the bus unattended while he took a nap at home. Ariel Castro kidnapped the first of three victims on August 23, 2002. Michelle Knight was 21 years old and on her way to a court hearing pertaining to her son that was a ward of the state. Castro followed the same pattern with all three victims where he would offer them a ride, drive to his house at 2207 Seymour Avenue, lure them inside, and then restrain them in the basement. Police admitted that they did not put enough resources into finding Knight since she was an adult at the time of her disappearance. The next victim was Amanda Berry who was kidnapped on April 21, 2003, a day before her 17th birthday. She was last heard from around 8 p.m. when she called her sister to tell her that she was getting a ride home from her job at a Burger King on West 110th Street and Lorraine Avenue. The final victim was Gina DeJesus. DeJesus was 14 at the time and was friends with Castro's daughter, Arlene Castro. She was last seen at a payphone around 3 p.m. on April 2, 2004, while on the way home from her middle school at West 105th Street and Lorraine Avenue. Shortly before Gina disappeared, her and Arlene had called Arlene's mother for permission to have a sleepover at DeJesus' home, but Figueroa replied that they could not and the two girls parted when she saw Ariel Castro, DeJesus was under the impression that Castro was picking her up to drop her off at home and she trusted Castro because she was friends with his teenage daughter. And when she was reported missing, an Amber Alert was not issued. Castro subjected Knight, Barry, and DeJesus to repeated violence including rape, food deprivation, and psychological torture. Prosecutors at Castro's sentencing wrote that diaries kept by the women, quote, speak of forced sexual conduct of being locked in a dark room, of anticipating the next session of abuse, of the dreams of someday escaping and being reunited with family, of being chained to a wall, of being held like a prisoner of war, 
of missing the lives they once enjoyed, of emotional abuse, of his threats to kill, of being treated like an animal, of continuous abuse, and of desiring freedom, end quote. Knight told police that Castro had impregnated her at least five times and had induced miscarriages each time through beatings, hitting her with dumbbells, punching her, and slamming her against walls. Knight's grandmother told reporters that she would require facial reconstruction surgery due to the beatings that she endured, and she lost hearing in one ear. At one point, she had a pet dog while in captivity, but Castro killed it by snapping its neck after it bit him while trying to protect Knight. De Jesus told law enforcement that she was raped but did not believe that she was ever impregnated. On Christmas Day 2006, Castro allegedly ordered Knight to assist in the birth of Barry's child, which took place in a small inflatable swimming pool, and he threatened to kill her if the baby did not survive. At one point, the baby stopped breathing, but Knight was able to resuscitate her. Castro occasionally took Amanda's daughter out of the house, including to visit his mother. She called him Daddy and Castro's mother, Grandmother. According to a statement from Cleveland police, officers visited Castro's home only once following the kidnappings to discuss an unrelated incident. Castro did not appear to be home at the time and was later interviewed elsewhere. Neighbors claim to have called the police about suspicious activity observed at the home, but police have said they have no record of any such calls. On May 6, 2013, Barry was able to make contact with one of Castro's neighbors, leading to her escape with her six-year-old daughter. The police were able to then rescue Knight and Jesus. According to the police, Castro left the house that day and Barry realized that he failed to lock the quote-unquote big inside door, although the exterior storm door was bolted. She did not attempt to break through the outer door because she thought that Castro, quote, was testing her, end quote, according to the police report. Previously, Castro had tested the woman by leaving the house partially unlocked and exits unsecured. If they attempted to escape, he beat them. Instead, Barry screamed for help when she saw neighbors through the screen. Neighbor Angel Cadero responded to the screaming but was unable to communicate with Barry because he spoke little English. Neighbor Charles Ramsey joined Cadero at the house's front door during the rescue. They kicked a hole through the bottom of the storm door and Barry crawled through carrying her daughter. Ramsey said that Barry told him that she and her child were being kept inside the house against her will. Upon being freed, she went to the house of another Spanish-speaking neighbor and with Ramsey's assistance, called 911 saying, quote, Help me, I've been kidnapped and I've been missing for 10 years and I'm here, I'm free now, end quote. Responding police officers enter Castro's house. They walk through an upstairs hallway with guns drawn, announcing themselves as Cleveland police. After peeking out from a slightly open bedroom door, Knight entered the hallway and leaped into an officer's arms, repeatedly saying, quote-unquote, you saved me. Soon after, D. Jesus entered the hallway from another room. Knight and D. Jesus walked out of the home, and all three plus the child were taken to Metro Health Medical Center. Barry and D. Jesus were released from the hospital the next day, and Knight was discharged four days later on May 10th. We did want to bring up that there is a possibility that Castro had a fourth victim. Ashley Summers went missing in early July 2007. Her family suspected she could have been a victim of Castro, but the police did not find her in Castro's home. As of this recording, she is still missing. Castro was arrested on May 6, 2013. 
Castro made his first court appearance at the Cleveland Municipal Court on May 9th, where bail was set at $2 million per kidnapping charge, adding to a total of $8 million. Additional charges included aggravated murder for intentional induction of miscarriages, attempted murder, assault, a charge for each instance of rape, and a kidnapping charge for each day each captive was held. On May 14th, Castro's attorney said he would plead, quote-unquote, not guilty to all charges if indicted for kidnapping and rape. A Cuyahoga County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment against Castro on June 7th. It contained 329 counts, including two counts of aggravated murder. After entering a not guilty plea for Castro on June 12th, one of his attorneys, Craig Weintraub, said that although some of the charges against Castro were indisputable, quote, it is our hope that we can continue to work toward a resolution to avoid having an unnecessary trial about aggravated murder and about the death penalty, end quote. And he continued by saying, we are very sensitive to the emotional strain and impact that a trial would have on the women, their families, and this community. On July 12th, a Cuyahoga County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment for the remainder of the period after February 2007. It brought the total of 977 counts, 512 counts of kidnapping, 446 of rape, 7 of gross sexual imposition, 6 of felonious assault, 3 of child endangerment, 2 of aggravated murder, and 1 of possession of criminal tools. On July 17th, Castro pleaded not guilty to the expanded indictment. Castro eventually pleaded guilty on July 26th to 937 from the 977 charges against him, including charges of kidnapping, rape, and aggravated murder as a part of a plea bargain which called for consecutive sentences of life in prison plus 1,000 years, all without parole. Under the plea deal, Castro forfeited his right to appeal and could not profit in any way due to his crimes. He also forfeited his assets, including his home, which prosecutors said would be demolished. The court forfeited all of his property and assets to the Cuyahoga County government. Before his sentencing, Castro addressed the court for nearly 20 minutes in which he said he was a quote-unquote good person and not a quote-unquote monster, but that he was addicted to sex and pornography and had quote-unquote practiced the art of masturbation from a young age. He claimed that he had never beaten or tortured the women and insisted that most of the sex with them was consensual. He shifted between apologizing and blaming the FBI for failing to catch him, as well as blaming his victims themselves for getting in a car with a stranger, along with insisting to the court that when he had sex with them, he discovered they were not virgins. He would alternatively shift back into apologetic comments saying, quote, I hope they can find in their hearts to forgive me because we had a lot of harmony going on in that home. The judge also heard from Knight and family members of Barry and Jesus. Knight told Castro, quote, You took 11 years of my life away. I spent 11 years in hell, and now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome all that has happened, but you will face hell for eternity. I will live on. You will die a little every day as you think of the 11 years of atrocity that you inflicted on us. I can forgive you, but I will not forget, end quote. As part of the plea bargain, the house where Castro had lived and held the women captive was demolished on August 7, 2013. Knight was present and handed out yellow balloons to spectators, which she said represented missing children. The balloons were released before De Jesus's aunt, 
began the demolition with a swing of a crane. Castro was found hanging from a bed sheet in his detention cell at the Correctional Reception Center in Orient, Ohio, on the evening of September 3, 2013, a month into his life sentence. Prison staff performed CPR on him and he was taken to the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center in Columbus, where he was pronounced dead shortly after. So Jenny, what do you think about this case? It's so awful to hear. I was familiar with this case beforehand, but getting into the details again is so brutal. Ariel Castro was a truly evil person in my opinion, like a vile man. I don't understand why he wasn't indicted for assaulting his wife so badly. A majority of these situations where someone goes on to do like an awful thing, I mean, he didn't kill any of the girls, thankfully, but there's red flags. And having this history of violence is a red flag. People don't really want to take it seriously, and I'm so tired of it. This has happened in several cases that we've talked about. It just all feels so preventable. And I mean, thankfully, the police admitted with Michelle Knight that they didn't really look that well into her, but it sucks that they didn't do that in the first place. I feel so bad for her because I don't know if she has a relationship at the moment, but when the movie came out, she really did not have a good relationship with her son, who she was, you know, hoping to meet. She was in court hearings trying to get like visitation and custody of him. And when she disappeared, he thought she had abandoned him and didn't want like anything to do with him. So can you imagine living all of your life for like 10 years thinking that your mom abandoned you having such terrible feelings toward her and then she's just like there again? I'm sure that's not an easy thing. I feel like she really had a difficult transition back into everyday life. I don't think her family was as supportive as Amanda Berry's and Gina De Jesus's was. And all three of them had awful things happen to them and they've lost so many years of their life that they can't get back. So I definitely agree with you. I think that Castro is a monster, and I don't think that he ever truly accepted that what he did was wrong. As we spoke about, he teeter-tottered between they were to blame and I had this going on with me, but nothing that was going on with Castro excused what he did to Nightberry and DeJesus whatsoever. I do think that the Cleveland police were wholly inept in this case. We had the example of them not really searching for Michelle Knight. The fact that they did not use the Amber Alert system for Gina DeJesus, despite the fact that she was 14 at the time that she went missing. And the fact that the neighbors repeatedly called them to tell them like, hey, something is up at this house. And the police never thought to do further investigations. They were just like, oh, yeah, the neighbors are saying stuff, but it doesn't really matter. And I don't believe them when they say that they have no record of these calls. I think that they're hiding their negligence in this case. This case is strange for a number of reasons, including the use of psychics to help solve the disappearance of the women. Psychic Sylvia Brown told Amanda Berry's mother, Luana Miller, that she was dead on a 2004 episode of the Montel Williams show. Brown told Miller, quote, she's not alive, honey, end quote, according to the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper. She continued to say that, quote, your daughter's not the kind who wouldn't call. And Miller ended up telling the newspaper that she believed it 98%. 
and unfortunately she died a year later from heart failure never knowing that her daughter was still alive and that she had a child in captivity and this is not the first nor the last time psychics would be wrong about the status of a missing person in the case of elizabeth smart psychics told police that she was dead when in fact she was alive in salt lake city being held by brian david mitchell Psychics also told police that Sandra Levy died in either Nevada due to a botched abortion or in Israel due to a suicide bombing. She was actually found dead in D.C. And once again, we go back to Sylvia Brown, who has said that six-year-old Opal Joe Jennings had been sold into slavery in Japan. Unfortunately, her body was found down the street from her home after being murdered by convicted sex offender Richard Lee Franks. Jenny, what are your feelings on psychics and their use in criminal investigations? I do believe that some people do have like psychic medium abilities, but I don't think every person that says they have these abilities truly has them. So I think that police and families really need to proceed with caution. I understand why the police do use them because sometimes there's literally nothing else to go off of. And I do understand why families want to use them too. But I feel like in more times than most, we see people getting taken advantage of. I have seen some show like Psychic Kids. I feel like some of that stuff is kind of real. And there was one show on the maybe like Investigation Discovery or something where it was all about psychics that did help the police. Some of the cases that were on there really convinced me. It needs to be taken with a grain of salt. It shouldn't be like the most impactful piece of evidence, but you know, maybe take it a little seriously, but don't put all of your weight onto it. What do you think? So I actually have the opposite opinion. I do not believe that anyone possesses any type of psychic or supernatural abilities. I think that people are able to use common human things like intuition, cold and hot readings to be able to be accurate when they are doing something that would be considered psychic. When heinous crimes happen, people tend to look for an explanation many times to prevent it from happening again. In this case, Castro blamed his sex addiction for his behavior. According to the ICD-10, sex addiction is described as a compulsive need to perform sexual acts in order to achieve the kind of quote-unquote fix that a person with alcohol use disorder gets from a drink or someone with opiate use disorder gets from using opiates. For some people, sex addiction can be highly dangerous and result in considerable difficulties with relationships. Like drug or alcohol dependence, it has the potential to negatively impact a person's physical and mental health, personal relationships, quality of life, and safety. Some report that it may manifest itself as a compulsive need to masturbate, view pornography, or be in sexually stimulating situations. A person with sex addiction may significantly alter their life and activities in order to perform sexual acts multiple times a day and are reportedly unable to control their behavior despite severe negative consequences. The International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals says sex addiction affects from 2% to 5% of the general population, but that only 10% of those with this addiction engage in criminal sexual behavior. So, Jenny, what are your thoughts on sex addiction and its role in criminal behavior? I do think it's a real thing. 
I don't know if this argument has happened as recently, but I feel like within the past decade, a lot of people wanted to say that they didn't think sex addiction was real. But I do think it is. Like we said, it's just the need to have like pleasure, gratification. I think sometimes that can even be just tied into intimacy and acceptance as well. And a lot of addiction, I think, stems from some type of trauma. And I can easily see sex addiction being part of that. We talked a little bit about mental health earlier. And again, I feel like that type of criminal behavior is a mental health issue. I think this is something that psychologists need to like research more. We do see, I would say, more men committing these crimes than women. So what influences that? Is it a lot of people want to say like relationships with someone's mom? Ed Kemper and the Green River Killer Gary Ridgway had like issues with their mom. I think personally, a lot of this goes into misogyny and how women are generally viewed and treated in this country. And I guess many countries throughout the world, because we often so hear about men brutalizing women and it being of a sexual nature. So I would like to see more research on that into like what builds these people, why sex is part of their crimes and their like motivations and whatnot. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that this is a real disorder and that it truly affects people's lives in some of the horrendous ways that other addictions affect people's lives. I did want to note that we're not saying that sex is bad, we're not being sex negative, we're just saying that for a small group of people, it becomes something that is disruptive to their lives. And this disruption and their craving for it can lead them down the path to criminal behavior and to fulfilling their desire for sex with non-consensual partners. And that's something that Ariel Castro did. I think that in a way he was trying to minimize his responsibility using sex addiction. And people sometimes do do that, but in no way are we saying that sex addicts are automatically criminals because they're not. I think that one of the most important things is that more research, like you were saying, goes into sex addiction and the treatments for it. While researching, there wasn't really any concrete treatments for it. Its acceptance is up and down. And so while alcohol and other substance abuse disorders are actually recognized by the DSM and they get funding and you're able to go to rehab for them, sex addiction is actually not recognized in the DSM. And so it's really hard for people, particularly in the United States, to get the right treatment that will set them on a good path. I think one of the other troubles with sex addiction is that it is tied to a natural faculty of life. And so treatment is also hard in the fact of not depriving the individual from intimacy, but also trying to regulate it so that it's not harmful anymore. If we do see more research on sex addiction, I would really like to see if repression has anything to do with that, whether you're growing up in maybe a religious household that doesn't talk about sex or you feel shameful about sex. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Cleveland kidnapping. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the story of Dr. Kevorkian. As always, stay safe.